0: Hello, and welcome to the Bigger Than Us podcast. I'm your host, Raj Daniels, and today I'd like to welcome Dr. William Conlon to the show. Dr. Conlon is the founder and president of Pintail Power and the inventor of the liquid air combined cycle and liquid salt combined cycle technologies. Since 2013, he has pioneered hybrid energy storage systems for utility-scale applications to address the Casio-Duck Curve and similar renewable integration problems around the world. Bill, how are you doing today?
1: Uh, good morning, Raj. I'm very well, thanks.
0: Bill, thank you for being on. Bill, you know, we were speaking briefly before we started recording about your background in Palo Alto, and I'd love to start the show with you sharing that.
1: Sure. Uh, we've been in uh, Palo Alto, my wife and I, for uh, oh, uh, co- close to 40 years now. Uh, I was a graduate student at RPI in Troy, New York, one of my lab mates, uh, uh, we introduced to uh, uh, my girlfriend at the time, my, who's now my wife. We introduced them. They got married. And at the wedding uh, in 81, uh, they, my wife started talking to the groom's mother about Apple because we had an Apple computer in our lab. And, uh, and she says, oh, well, we don't, know, uh, we don't have enough people out uh, at Apple and Cupertino. Send us your resume. And so that's what happened. My wife sent a resume, she got an a interview and a job offer, and uh, came out here in the, uh, early 1982 to join Apple Computer uh, in the early days. So I followed her out here uh, and went to work for P- uh, Pacific Gas and Electric Company on the Diablo Canyon nuclear power plant. And we stayed uh, here in town ever since. So
0: how long did she end up staying with Apple?
1: She was there for about five years and uh, did a, a wide variety of things. And in those days, things moved fast. She was a, a, a writer-editor on the uh, first, uh, first day. And on the second day, she was a product manager and uh, kind of went from there. And she ended up, uh, in, ended up landing in the service uh, division and uh, got to work on uh, Apple service around, uh, around the world and um uh, then uh, was a strategic planning uh person in, and finally left and, and formed a consulting firm
0: you know usually i like to kick the show off with something interesting about my guest but that in itself is an interesting story
1: i think it shows uh first of all that uh, luck matters you know random things happen to us and you never know uh who might uh, open a door for you or create an opportunity for you So. Uh, that we've we've been very fortunate, and I I view life that way. That uh, you know, I was born in a uh, at an interesting time in a great country to parents who loved me and could afford to give me a good education, and I, and I had all of the benefits of uh, of this the space age uh, era, uh, the Sputnik era, uh, focus on education and science and technology. So. I've been, I've been very fortunate, and I my view is, well, okay, uh, now uh, don't screw up, number one, and uh, try to make a contribution to, uh, to pay that back.
0: Well, I love that view, and you mentioned interesting time. The question I like to lead with usually is sharing something interesting about you, and you mentioned something about genealogy to me when we uh, corresponded earlier. Can you um, perhaps expand a little bit on that?
1: Yeah, so I one of the things uh, I, I know you often asked about uh, something that people don't know about me, and maybe maybe a couple of people know, but I have been uh, interested in genealogy for, oh, maybe about 20 years. Uh, my dad started uh, with a family tree, and I really took over. And to me, uh, genealogy is a lot about exploring uh, your own past. And we we know, right, for those of us who are lucky enough, we got to know our grandparents. Uh, and of course, our parents got to know their grandparents if they were fortunate and our grandparents that we know got to know their grandparents. So there's this history that goes back over the generations of influence. And as uh, you know, as we try to figure out why we are the way we are and why we react in a certain way, we really have to go back through those generations and that's part of my interest is understanding uh, where I came from to see what motivates me and why. Uh, And then the same thing is that those influences from the great, great, great grandparents that, you know, that that really have a personal connection to me because every these people, my ancestors knew those people. I think we need to turn that around and uh, and pay it forward. You know, there's this American Indian uh, idea of making a decision considering seven generations. And I kind of view that, you know, we. We, to go back seven generations, and nobody that I knew knew those people you no know, but so so that's kind of the thing you you can easily see that your children, your grandchildren uh and then beyond that, their children and grandchildren these are all people that you can have a direct impact on, and so that's the way I view uh my place in the world. I don't have kids myself, but i I think it's really the ethical uh the ethical world that I operate in.
0: So I do find that really interesting and maybe it's just really relevant to me right now. I do have three young children and in the past year, I've sent both my parents and my in-laws a set of what I'm calling questions for grandparents, if you will, so they can start documenting. Because my children are asking now, my youngest is seven and my middle is nine, my oldest is 11. And every once in a while they ask, you know. What did, you know, grandma do when she was young? What did she want to be? Where do they live? And I'm an immigrant to the country. Me personally, my family goes back. We are four generations removed from India. We started in India. My parents, East Africa. I was born in London and my children are born here. So records don't necessarily exist, but fortunately, my parents are still around. My in-laws still around and I put together this questionnaire and they can kind of start going through and creating this um, this document, this living document, if you will, kind of addressing some of those uh, questions that you mentioned right now. And as far as, you know, multi-generational, I was kind of joking with my middle daughter recently. I was just watching her on the sofa and we were talking about something. And I said, you know, you're a combination of everyone that's come before you, you know, my grandmother, you know, your mom's grandmother, et cetera, et cetera. All these people that came before you, you're a product of that. And so uh, to me, that's really, really relevant. And perhaps as I get older it becomes more important to me, and the, the fact that we've, my family's moved so much, and we don't have that that genealogy, that history, that that document is going to provide some of that for my children.
1: Well, Raj, I think you are a classic American in that sense because uh, certainly uh, that's that was my experience, my family's experience of a lot of a lot of motion from various parts of the world to come together. Uh, I'll I'll say this uh, one thing we did that was uh, that I cherish a lot is we had a videotape made an interview of my dad and my mom on their 50th wedding anniversary. And uh, it's a great thing to have. But your kids, we ha- all have these phones now that have video capability, and uh, they could be interviewers as well. And I think that that would be a great thing that uh, would help to refresh their memories as well as, as they grow older, remember their their grandparents.
0: Well, another interesting point. Since I started the podcast, my oldest daughter has become very interested in recording and podcast, and so now I have this mobile podcasting kit. And I said, you know, we can start interviewing our, you know, you, you can start interviewing your grandparents and asking these questions, and you know, capture it live. So, my my parents and my grand my in laws are still a little bit, you know, hesitant about being on um being on camera. But uh, I think doing the audio version will put them more at ease. But absolutely, I, I agree with you 100% trying to, you know, not only document, but capture those recordings too. So Bill, switching gears a little bit, can you share what your current endeavor is?
1: Yeah, so I have founded a company called Pintail Power. And our focus is long duration, large scale energy storage. Uh, the company is named after the famous uh, KISO Duck, so the California Independent System Operator, or CAISO, is the grid operator here in California. And in 2012 or so, they identified that the emergence of solar PV at large scale to meet the state's, at the time, 20% and then 30% renewable portfolio standard, was going to change the net load curve that the transmission operator served and cause a big depression around solar noon. So when they looked at the, the so the duck curve comes from the change in the, the shape of the load curve, a deep belly forms around solar noon, and then with increasing electrification, uh, there's a peak, uh, in the, a, a steeper peak in the evening. And the outline of that looks like a duck. So we really named the company Pintail Power after, uh, after this duck curve, Pintail is a kind of duck.
0: That's interesting. And for those that don't quite understand the duck curve, can you give more details on that?
1: Yeah. So what happens is the solar PV, uh, especially in California, comes on during the day. And we have so much of it now in California that we have to curtail. There's no place to put the energy. So the electric system is a just-in-time process. There really isn't traditionally storage Uh, in the the system. It's not like, uh, say, groceries where you have uh, refrigerators and freezers and you can store a product. In electricity, it truly is just in time. It's an instantaneous balance of supply and demand. So all of this solar energy that comes on during the day, what that means is uh, you have to use it. And if nobody needs it, then you can't use it. So we curtailed some uh, 4,000 megawatts of solar pv on april 21st this year it was a sunday in the spring uh that's an example and it's projected that uh, we will be curtailing uh solar energy uh every day uh uh in the in the foreseeable future Uh, maybe in five or six years out there'll be weeks where we have to curtail large amounts of uh of solar energy so that is a problem. That's First of all, it became a problem for the traditional power generators that have baseload stations. And of course, that has helped to drive coal out of the market. It's also caused uh, economic problems for operators of gas-fired power plants. They now need to shut them down the, during the day and start them up. Uh, that increases their maintenance costs. But more importantly, it means that they don't produce as much energy as was projected when they financed those plants and so those plants have become impaired assets they they're not worth as much as uh, as people expected them to be well with curtailment of solar power of course if you produce if you're ready to produce it but you can't sell it to anybody then how much is the plant worth so we're seeing now curtailment or impairment of curtailed renewable assets just like we saw uh, asset impairment of conventional assets, assets like gas fire generation. So this is really where uh, energy storage can come in and the scope and scale of the need for storage is very large. I mentioned 4,000 uh, megawatts curtailed uh, just this year. We expect a need for some 10 to 13,000 megawatts of energy storage capacity in California on the grid. And that storage that needs to be available for uh, perhaps overnight to take that solar energy and use it uh, in place of gas overnight. So that is a very large scale problem. And that's what I decided to focus my attention on.
0: So first of all, I love your analogy about the freezer in the store. It makes it so simple for someone to understand. Secondly, can you expand more on what your product actually is?
1: Yeah, so... uh, so, I look, I come out of uh, uh, conventional power. I worked in nuclear power. Uh, we then, I then moved to uh, conventional gas fire generation. Uh, well, we actually uh, innovated there to greatly improve the efficiency of gas generation. Uh, then I moved to solar energy. All of these things were done at large scale. And, and the history of the power business is one of economy of scale. We build it bigger because the unit cost of production goes down. Now, economy of scale works like this. If I double the diameter of a pipe through which steam or water flows, we can flow four times as much of that material through through that pipe. But the pipe's material and cost only went up by about a factor of two. That's why we build power plants bigger, that's why in fact, economy of scale applies as well to things like data centers. All of this stuff is up in the cloud now. So economy of scale has driven the power business for oh a hundred and some years. That, and it's also the business I come out of, large scale power. So that was my focus. I felt that to solve a big problem, we were going to need economy of scale to drive the cost down. Because that's really what the problem is with energy storage and why we don't have energy storage on the grid. It really has been too expensive.
0: So what form of storage are you working on?
1: So we use uh, thermal energy. So thermal energy has, has long been acknowledged to be the cheapest form of storage media. Uh, and it's uh, simple and robust. And so you can store thermal energy lots of different ways. Uh, you can store it in molten salt, as is done in a concentrated solar power plant, and that's what we use. But there are other, uh, other means. There's a Siemens Gamesa project that uses uh, rocks and heats rocks up uh, and moves air through a rock pile to do heat transfer. There are companies, uh, including my own, that have also looked at using cryogenic liquids, where we store uh, air uh, and refrigerate it, down until it becomes cryogenic, so cold that it liquefies and you can store air and then subsequently regasify the air. But we use molten salt as our product and we use it in concert with conventional generation. And our purpose here is to apply a couple of principles. One, economy of scale. This is equipment that's proven, is available at large scale to, to do this job. And we are looking for synergy. What we are doing here is combining the thermal energy storage, which is cheap, with a heat source from a conventional uh, system to improve the efficiency of extraction. Because that's fundamentally the problem with thermal and mechanical storage is its round-trip efficiency is relatively low compared to, say, batteries. Batteries cost a lot for the battery, uh, but they have high efficiency. Thermal and mechanical systems, they can be much cheaper, but they have low efficiency. So what we do is we bring these things together in a novel way to, uh, to get adva- the cost advantage of, of thermal storage and the safety of thermal storage with the efficiency that you get from using uh, high temperatures available from uh, conventional thermal equipment. So, ours is a hybrid that's got storage and it's got generation, and they're brought together in technical and economic synergies.
0: So, from a footprint standpoint, how large is your facility?
1: We target, uh, we're currently targeting plants in the 100 megawatt range with, say, 24 hours of storage. And those plants would uh, occupy a few acres. It's a far more compact. Uh, storage than than you would have with uh, batteries, per se. Or even with pumped hydro. Uh, Pumped hydro is probably the most common form of energy storage in the business. And in pumped hydro, we have uh, two lakes or reservoirs at different elevations and to store energy, we put electricity into a pump, we pump the water uphill, and we can hold it there in the upper reservoir. When we need the energy, it runs uh, down to the lower reservoir through a turbine. So that's most of the uh, stored energy uh, in the world uh, is in pumped hydro form. Uh, but you need two lakes and those are, are, tend to be pretty large. We have very high energy density uh, so we can store uh, a gigawatt hour. So a thousand megawatt hours or a million kilowatt hours in a, a single tank, maybe a, a hundred foot diameter.
0: That's really interesting. Now, how long have you been working on this?
1: I came out of uh, the solar thermal industry in uh, the end of 2012, and I, uh, I did some due diligence uh, for some, on energy storage. Uh, I had become aware of the duck curve and thought that this was the, the future that, um, and a place where I could make a contribution with my skills and experience uh, and uh, a place where I could have an impact in, in my remaining professional career in something that could have an impact on carbon. So so I looked around, I did the diligence for VCs and governments uh, looking at different energy storage technologies, battery chemistries, uh, compressed air energy storage systems and the like. And I concluded that the problem with them was not that they wouldn't work. It was that they were not going to be low cost enough. And uh, I looked at hybrids like the Prius hybrid that came out, uh, around that time and thought this really makes a lot of sense to combine that we can get these technical and economic synergies with hybrids. So, so in 2014, early 2014, uh, I, I developed tech, started developing technology and founded a company to commercialize that technology. So I've been at this for six years in that, in those six years. We've developed two uh, classes of technology. One uses a cryogenic liquid air as a storage medium, and that's a technology that's suitable for very large scale, uh, many gigawatt hours of energy stored for uh, many weeks. So it, it could address the very large scale uh, areas. And it's all based on proven equipment, uh, similar to what is used in the liquidified natural gas business.
0: So you mentioned six years. You know, one of the things I really like to explore on this show is the why behind the choices, you know, why you've decided to commit to this. There's obviously opportunity cost. You know, you you saw something, something changed with you, let's say 2012, 2014. So what's your why for doing this?
1: Well, my why is is to make an impact, number one. So uh, I, I became aware of the greenhouse gas problem. In 1973, I had a lecture in my Elements in Nuclear Engineering class. Professor uh, Fred White came in. He was a guest lecturer, and he told us about the the way that this planet had sequestered carbon over the course of hundreds of millions of years and taking carbon uh, out of the atmosphere and putting it into things like coal and oil and gas and carbonates that are that the shells of mollusks are made of and uh, various other things So carbon got taken out of the atmosphere and deposited geologically. And that this took geologic time to do this. At the same time, we, we knew uh, in nuclear engineering, we were in a battle against coal. And so he says to us, well, look, we are burning, we, are, we have so much electricity uh, that we consume each year. And if we do it with coal, And we have a growth rate to meet population and so forth. How long before we take all this carbon that's in coal and we put it back into the atmosphere. And so that was a problem for engineers. We got our slide rules out and uh, my recollection is that it was about 10,000 years to put all of that carbon that had taken hundreds of millions of years to put in the ground and put it back in the atmosphere. That stuck with me. That, that is really the fundamental problem and why I uh, I stayed as a nuclear engineer and got my PhD in that field. And throughout my career since then, I've been focused on putting less carbon in, right? We're not building nuclear power plants in this country anymore. So what can we do to put less carbon in? So uh, I felt I was an experienced executive. I'd worked uh, on projects around the world. I'd led engineering teams. I'd done new product uh, technology uh, commercialized two technologies in the energy business I felt that this was something that I could do and that it was also something that I should do um, now quite frankly I thought uh, I never thought it would be as difficult or take as long to get the kind of recognition that uh, we need and to actually get a plant in the ground but uh, that unfortunately is uh, is the way it goes in this business
0: you know, I was telling someone this morning that during these interviews and conversations, a couple of common themes that I come across, individuals like yourself, is that, first of all, optimism, is that you're doing it because you think, obviously, there's a chance of succeeding, but not to conflate that with the fact that it's going to be easy. So absolutely understand what you're saying there.
1: So none of this is easy. And uh, what as we... Uh, try to launch something in the energy business uh, it's a very conservative business uh, so so introducing something new is a big challenge and this this is really I think part of the conundrum for venture uh, venture capital uh, they they are based on uh, short-term returns where uh, technological innovation uh, gives an edge and yet the utility industry, is based on assets that have lifetimes of 30 to 50 years in the field and we continue to extend them and use them even afterwards. Uh, Transmission lines might go, as we've seen in California, uh, for a a long period of time without, uh, without being replaced. So there's a fundamental mismatch here. And so to overcome that mismatch, what we need to do is use a combination of proven equipment and that's what we do with the hybrid what we try to do is bring proven equipment together in a novel way to achieve something better. Uh, so that—that that is, I, I think that is my, one of my methods in trying to uh, remove some of the hard uh, problem here is Is—is to use cleverness and uh, thinking and novelty uh, with the proven equipment. And, and we hope that way we can Uh, achieve a comfort level with utilities and others in this very conservative industry.
0: I appreciate that. And you know, you've been in the Bay Area, Palo Alto, what, 81, I think you said, 1981. What kind of conversations or appetites for investment have you seen in that area since you started your project?
1: So I I think that um, we we saw going back a little bit further into the mid 2000s, there was this uh, uh, green tech, clean tech uh, wave where uh, everybody was interested. Yes, and we saw a lot of companies uh, get funded, uh, some of them infamous like uh, Solyndra, uh, others uh, that have had I- IPOs like Bloom Energy, but probably will not have uh, great returns for their investors. We've seen outright losses. Um, uh, BrightSource uh, is one that spent a lot of money, but I don't think they'll, they'll see a return. So there were very few profitable exits. One of the few of them was a company I joined called Osra. It was in the CSP business and I joined it and helped turn that company around uh, technically. And we were able to then uh, fix the technology, uh, sell the company to Arriva, the French uh, nuclear operator. And based on their balance sheet, uh, we achieved over a billion dollar backlog within 13 months with that technology. And that was a successful exit for the VCs. It wasn't the uh, 10 to 1 return that they wanted. But given where we were when I came in, uh, we actually had a 10 to 1 return on the money they uh, let me spend. So uh, so that, w- that was, a, in my view, a really successful thing. And then I, I left there and the storage uh, industry was getting a lot uh, of, of money. There were companies like Lightsail and Compressed Air, uh, many others that uh trying to develop new technologies, new chemistries. I think I came to this a little bit late to catch the wave uh, of that. And so what I see is that VCs are uh, often enthusiastic and embrace these things. Uh, but, but the ones that, uh, that we saw in the clean, green, t- green tech and clean tech era and continuing on to storage, I think what they saw is how difficult it was to be in business, and that the business models of, uh, certainly for large systems, uh, just was not sustainable with, uh, with VC money.
0: That is interesting, and I personally hope that some of those views change, obviously for selfish reasons and for people like you and many other people that I interview on the show and speak to is that. I see a lot of promising technologies, but I see, you know, entrepreneurs such as yourself struggling to get that early stage capital for some of these projects. And one of the things that we're trying to do here with at Nexus is to make perhaps introductions into alternative sources of investment. We've spoken to several family offices here in Dallas, and I know our CEO Ben, he speaks to family offices quite frequently, trying to introduce them to this space because. Some of their mandates are changing too, where they want to invest their capital into, let's call it ESG or triple bottom line, where they can see favorable returns while making investments into projects that are good for the environment or good for the planet, or even just you know, from a legacy perspective.
1: I, I think that these are the kinds of things that dovetail very well with, uh, with the problem that we have of, of climate change and this climate crisis. That it needs to be uh, individuals who are uh, committed uh, to this. At the same time, you know, let's take a look at the examples. Uh, the there are individuals, Bill Gates among them, who who have committed large amounts of money to very ambitious efforts. For example, in nuclear power. Yet, uh, you know, this is a really uh, expensive way to do this. And if one has to build a uh, a pilot plant to demonstrate a technology. And it costs the bil- uh, order of a billion dollars to do that. Uh, that is beyond the means of of almost anybody except the government. So, to me, again, this is where uh, the hybrid approach comes in. Look, we saw this with Bright Source. We saw it with my the company I was with, Osra, that that to use venture money for steel and concrete uh, to build a a pilot plant was was just way too expensive. It took too long. So you have two things going against you. You need a lot of money and you need a lot of time. And those depress the returns to a point that it's not attractive to uh, venture capital. So, So we have to cut out the amount of money, number one. And so how do we do that? Well, with a hybrid, all of the equipment is already proven, right? We don't have to develop. I don't have to develop tanks or gas turbine or pipes. All of that stuff can be purchased. So I I would say to entrepreneurs, that is one of the places where you come together. That becomes more like a development uh, business model. And then the other thing is we have to compress the time frame. We have to compress the time frame, of course, for our investors to give them a, a return. But we also have to do it because this crisis is an integral problem. Every ton of carbon we emit today will be warming the planet for centuries. So... Uh, to get the carbon out of the air now uh, even with a hybrid solution that still uses a little bit of gas uh, in my view is far more impactful on the climate crisis than having a perfect solution 30 years from now so if the perfect solution arrives 30 years from now that's great and it can replace our equipment but our view is let's do what we can now because it's so important to uh, reduce carbon
0: so Couple of things you said. Number one, you know, using hybrid or existing technologies, going back to your history with Apple, in two thousand seven when Apple launched the iPhone, they took existing technologies and packaged them together into the iPhone. So it took a phone, they took a camera, took a recorder, you know, GPS technology and several others and they packaged them together. So they, they essentially your model is very similar to that. The second part of what you said about you know good and perfect one of the things i like to ask my guests is if you could give some advice to the audience what would it be
1: uh so uh, i have a, a kind of innovation aphorism i uh, would use with my engineering team at osra uh, and that is that intuition without experience and analysis is superstition now I am a huge fan of intuition. Intuitive leaps are, are like time travel. When we have that intuitive leap in our mind and we can see this path without having to slog through all of, of the details, that, that is a brilliant thing. So, Steve Jobs, who could envision the iPhone, uh, that, that was fabulous. So, we need intuition, but then we need to uh, bring together uh, experience, so that we uh, know what works and what doesn't work, and we know how to bring it to market. And we need analysis to make sure that we're not fooling. Because if we just make this intuitive leap, uh, uh, we, can, we can waste a lot of time and money. And, and, and th- that brings us to the next thing that I would tell my team. Uh, I, I jokingly say, look, I can always get more money." I might have to sell my kneecaps to the mafia, but I can get more money if, if what we're doing can bring more money, bring a positive return to investors. But what I can't get is more time. And so time is really the, the most important thing. Our time limited on the planet. Uh, the time value of money for our investors uh, is critical. So. So that's why, to me, intuition is essential. So we need to prize intuition. We need to use intuition uh, to do this kind of time travel or compress compressing time uh, to get to an end fast. And and then we need to use that intuition effectively.
0: So if I were to tease out the advice, I would say intuition, then use analysis, then get to work.
1: Absolutely. And then the, the challenge for all of us is um, how long do you go at this? Uh, uh, you know, I'm, I'm fortunate. Uh, I, have, uh, uh, I have some means to be able to sustain this. I have a great network of, uh, of uh, colleagues to support me. Um, and uh, so, so uh, I've been able to go at this for these six years. Uh, but uh, one, one has to always consider, is this the best use of your time on the planet? My conclusion is that this is the best use of my
0: Well, Bill, I think that's a beautiful place to end it. And I really appreciate all your hard work. And I look forward to seeing where your projects end up.
1: Well, I'd uh, ask anybody who's interested to visit our website. We are pintailpower.com, P-I-N-T-A-I-L, power.com. And uh, we've uh, had some success. We were just at the PowerGen Trade Show, had a lot of interest in New Orleans in uh, November. And there's an article in the December... Uh, 2019 issue of Power Magazine on uh, on hybrids, and I hope people will take a look at that. I will put
0: links to your company site and to the article in the show notes.
1: Great. Thanks very much.
0: Thank you, Bill. I really appreciate your time.
1: It's been my pleasure.